from Isaiah chapter 57. But thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray. Father, we read here in your word several great dichotomies. You dwell in the high place and with the low person. You are the great and almighty and you dwell in eternity, high and lifted up. And you dwell with the lowly and contrite who knows him who knows herself to be nothing. And you also then dwell with this low, contrite, humble one to revive. You do not come to us in our contrition to crush, to us in our our humbleness to humiliate, but you come to us in our lowliness to lift us up. And so the way down is up for us, and kindly you, you stoop to come down to us and carry us. This is not something that we could do. We have sung and we have prayed about, we acknowledge it is not something that is within our power. Thank God, literally, thank you, God, that you come down to dwell with us and revive. But you revive, it says, contrite. You revive the lowly. And so, Father, my prayer this morning here is that as we listen to your word and as we contemplate what it says, that you would do a work in us here, those who are your peoples, most of us here are, and some who aren't, some who are listening, some who will hear this later, that you would do a work in all who hear this to lower us, to grow in us contrition, to heighten our lowliness, because in the depths is where you, find, where you are found to revive. And that's what I want for us, Lord. I want that for myself. I want that for my brothers and sisters here. I, I want that we would experience, I myself want to experience revival from you, enlivening and stirring and lifting up from you. But you tell us in Isaiah and you tell us in the Gospel of Luke that the way down is up, the way up is down. These are confusing things, Lord, but you tell us. And so take this passage today, Lord, and grow in us lowliness. And please, finish the rest of this verse in us this morning, or in good time, or don't just leave us low. Come to your people and lift up. Even this morning, Lord, do that, please. Give clarity to my words so that I I, I land on these truths properly with the right weight in the right place. 
give clarity so that I can explain things clearly and not be confusing. And, and give clarity, Spirit of God, give clarity to not only my speaking and not only to the Word of God, but also to the hearing of the people of God, that, that they would be able to hear without distraction, without barrier. And Spirit, I pray that you would open the minds, open the hearts, open the eyes of those who do not believe. Lord, make that clear. Speak and save. Speak and sanctify. Speak and build your people this morning, I pray. Use this passage. Use this time. Honor the name of Christ and build up your people. Thank you, Father, for being so good and so trustworthy, for being a high and a holy God who comes down low to be with us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 6, where we find the extended teaching of Jesus known as the, the Sermon on the Plain, or by Matthew's language, the Sermon on the Mount. A little more common, we know it as that. So we saw last week in verses 12 to 19, Jesus had gone up on a mountain by himself to pray, and then he called out his 12 particular disciples, named them the apostles. He called them out of this larger crowd of disciples, and then with these 12, he descended down the mountainside to a lower place, a level place, where there was a larger crowd of disciples and a great multitude of other people all waiting for him. They'd come from all over, a massive crowd, come to hear him teach and to be healed, as usual. And, as usual, Jesus, full of spiritual power, poured out divine power on these crowds, casting out demons, healing where necessary, and, as we see today, teaching. But all we saw last week was wisdom and compassionate power poured out on the world all around him because he had it to give. He was full of wisdom and compassionate power, having spent time alone with God the Father. That was the pattern that we saw last week, ministry as overflow. Ministry to people all around as an overflow of God's relationship, God's deepening indwelling of the minister. Necessary for Jesus, necessary for every disciple, and gloriously possible for all of us because Christ has opened up the way into the throne room of God and invites us to come in. He invites us to come in, to sit down before him. And we can do this. We must do this. We can do this. Praise Jesus. We can do this. We can be filled up by him. And when we can, like living water flowing out of the stream, flowing out of the fountain of our hearts, we can pour him out, be conduits for him into the world all around. That was last week. Ministry is overflow. And now we come to his teaching. This extended sermon, and, and as I referred to it over the next several weeks, I'll be calling it by Matthew's term, the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what we know it best as. But in saying that, in using Matthew's term, a couple things we need to understand as we approach Luke's account. As we all know, if you've ever read the Gospels, you, we all know that the various Gospels often record 
the same events, the, the same stories, the same teachings, even the same parables. They, they occur repeatedly in the different gospel accounts. And important point, they all do so under the direction and inspiration of God. And they are all a little bit different for different purposes. All of them given by God, inspired by God to, to continue on the flow of a particular gospel. Each of them are different. Each of them fit into the flow of that gospel as God inspired it, as God gave it. So, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. We know, we know that Matthew and Luke both have this sermon, but each recounting is quite different from the other. Both inspired by God. And remember, it's God's inspired word, God's written word. That's what's given to us. That's what we study. That's what we look at. That's what we attempt to understand and attempt to apply. The written word, in this case, the written word of God, according to Luke, from Luke's pen. Or if we were to look at Matthew, the written word of God, according to Matthew, from Matthew's pen. Not some attempted composite of the two. God didn't give us a composite. He gave us Matthew, and he gave us Luke. And so, we are looking at Luke. As we do so, we'll notice that Luke brings out different aspects of this sermon, these individual teachings, and that's important for Christians to understand always, always in relationship to all the Gospels, and important for us to understand as we approach this sermon, and perhaps particularly important for this congregation at this time because so many of us have recently had the privilege of studying Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. A large number of us have been in studies, have read, have even listened to, because he's, he's modern enough that you can hear him preach, and have dealt with Lloyd-Jones' sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is a giant. I, I can't commend him to you highly enough. He's excellent, and his dealing with the Sermon on the Mount is some of his best material. However... He is concerned with Matthew's gospel, not Luke. So, as we move through Luke, we're not really dealing with the same material. And that's going to be an issue probably for me as I try not to say what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. It's going to be an issue for some of us as we try not to hear what Martin Lloyd-Jones said because we're not actually talking, not only am I not Lloyd-Jones, but we're not even talking about the same thing. Similar, of course. Of course it's similar, but it's not the same. And we have to listen to this afresh and not let what you've heard before become what you hear. We've got to listen to the Gospel of Luke recount this sermon. We begin today with the first of the Beatitudes, which is a general name derived from, from the first word of these sayings, blessed. And it's a very common type of speech in the, in the ancient world. All kinds of people in all kinds of societies wrote and pronounced Beatitudes. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature and the Psalms, full of them. And Jesus has some Beatitudes for us as well. And today we'll be focusing on verse 20, the first Beatitude. 
but I'm going to read a little bit wide. I'm going to read 17 to 23 so as to get a little larger scope. I won't always be going one verse at a time, but today, because this is an important one, it's the beginning of the sermon, I'm going to focus on just one verse, but I'm going to read 17 to 23 to give us a little larger scope. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The word of the Lord from Luke 6. I'm going to make three observations from this passage, the first one shorter. Focusing on verse 20, it's the first observation. Disciples are fortunate to be citizens of the kingdom of God already. I want to say that emphasizing two words to kind of show you where my emphasis lies. Disciples are fortunate to be citizens of the kingdom of God already. It's the first observation here. We remember the setting from verse 17. Jesus is with the 12 on a level place with two large groups, a great crowd of his disciples and then a massive crowd of other people who've come from all over the place, from the Gentile lands and from Jerusalem lands and from Judean, Judean lands and Jerusalem, the great city. All kinds of people have come. And verse 19, power came out from him and healed them all. Talked about this last week. This is just indiscriminate, compassionate power falling on both those groups. Whoever has an issue, whoever has a disease, whoever has a demon possession, power falls on all who need. And then verse 20, continuing right on, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Narrows. Here he comes to the teaching, and it is directed at the group of disciples, which is important for us to note for this morning and to keep in mind throughout the whole of this sermon. Jesus' immediate, direct audience, the one to whom he speaks, the, the group to whom he is applying all the blessings and, and all the positive things, are, we must always keep in mind, those who have already raised their hands and are self-identifying with Jesus. Who are saying... I'm with the Son of Man. I'm a follower. I'm a disciple of His. By, by their own acknowledgement. We use terms from our day 
He's talking to the church, not to the world. He's talking to those who claim Christ, not those who don't. Of course, the world's listening in, even this morning. The world's listening in around there. This massive crowd of people are all around in the perimeter. They're all hearing. And, of course, also within the church, within the group of those who profess to be disciples, there are, of course, those who are not, in fact, who profess but have not actually in heart trusted. That's, that's always the case. But acknowledging that, we have to be clear from the very beginning that Jesus' target audience, the people that he is talking to and intends to, to apply these things to, is the church Christians. Disciples. And the first beatitude is first because it explains to us our standing, where we are right now as disciples, how we became us. And here's our standing. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you, you disciples, Blessed, that's the word from which we get beatitude, a word that describes a person's happy or delighted or joyful attitude in some sort of good fortune. As I said, extremely common in that day. So good fortune happens to you. Maybe you, you have a child or you get a job or your country wins a military victory. Blessed are you who won the battle. Blessed, fortunate, happy are you because you got a job. Very common in our situation. Blessed are you for, because, yours is the kingdom of God. You disciples, the poor, we'll come back to that. It's very important, we'll come back to that. He's speaking to you about what is yours already. If you look ahead, you notice the next, verse 21, the next couple of sentences talk about what will be the case. Shall be satisfied, shall laugh, will gain great reward in heaven. But the first one is about what is already, not what will be, what is now. Fortunate, happy, blessed, Joyful are you because right now, already, you have citizenship in the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom. This place, this kingdom, think about the kingdom for a minute. Everybody who's listening to him would have understood what he meant. The kingdom, the place where the reign, where the rule of God is exercised and realized. A place where God's values and God's agenda, God's ways, righteousness and justice flow out from the throne of God's king out onto God's people, out into all of God's creation such that when the kingdom is there in its fullness, everywhere you look would be righteousness and justice and goodness and peace and love and grace covering all of the earth as the water covers the sea. And everybody present would enjoy 
the presence of God, the peace of God, the shalom of God, the great wholeness and unity of the people of God. It would be eternal Sabbath rest, no enemies and no danger and no sin and no decay. The kingdom, the hope of the Old Testament, the hope of the people of God, that God would bring the kingdom, it would come. And that's what we today we're not Old Testament people. But that, if you think about that, it's what every single person on the earth longs for today. Even those who have zero interest in talking about anything Christian, Jewish, biblical, spiritual, whatever. Every single person longs for righteousness and justice to cover the earth and bring peace and wholeness and unity and love. It's what everybody's chasing. And we're all confused about how that comes. We're chasing it in a thousand different ways, but everybody wants that. And we, people of God, we today, we still, that's, that's written into our hearts. It's, it's planted deep within us also. Now we know a whole lot more about it than they knew when they listened to Jesus preach. But what he says to them and what he says to you, disciple, is that all of that already is here. Now, not in fullness, but all of that in part. So every word that I use to describe that, righteousness and justice and the reign of God and peace and presence of God, every single one of those things, if you were to make a category from every single one of them, you could say, not in fullness, not yet, but in part, every single one of them. The kingdom has come and the king reigns on the throne in the heart of every single one of his people and amongst his people, this new community. His presence is real for us. It has been given to us. You know it, you live in it even now. You experience it in the church, not in fullness, but in part already. Fortunate and happy Blessed are you because that's your reality. That is your standing now, here, already. So we should think about that and should relish it and, and should, should sit under it and should ah, rejoice in it. This is so good. You're a citizen. You have a a standing in the kingdom already. Imagine that and rejoice in it. And yet, at the same time, we should note that this beatitude, the point of this beatitude is not exactly, not exactly to make us think about the kingdom and to rejoice in it, not exactly. But it's got a slightly different slant, a slightly different direction the emphasis falls on to whom the kingdom has come. Less on the fact that kingdom is and more on the fact kingdom is for whom. That's where the weight of our time this morning is going to have to fall. Who is blessed for yours is the kingdom of God. 
So there is a kingdom, and there is immense goodness, and we need to start with this because we've got to put something on the table, and if, if I could put a, a, on a podium here something, something shiny to keep your attention and realize this is what we're talking about, this glorious good thing. When we talk about poor, this is what's on the table, this is what's on the line, if you will. For the poor, which takes us to our second point. Kingdom, right here, sitting on the podium. Second point, those who receive this, those who receive the kingdom are poor. But maybe not like we think. Those who receive the kingdom are poor, but maybe not like we think. The sentence, the beatitude, does not read, blessed are you who identify yourselves as my disciples. Blessed are you who call yourselves followers, for yours is the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are you who are poor. For, why, why blessed? For yours is the kingdom. Yours alone is the kingdom. Follow the logic of that. It wouldn't make any sense to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom, and in fact the kingdom belongs to everybody else too. That would gut the sentence. The effect of it is, blessed are you and only you who are poor, for yours alone is the kingdom. And then you see, well, my word, we better figure out what poor means. Because this glorious reality only goes to those who are poor. What does he mean? What's he directing our minds towards when he says poor? We've got to talk really about what he doesn't mean first. That's the second point. Poor, but maybe not like you think. And there's, there's one relatively easy one that I want to clear away first and then show us that, but something in that, he, he used this word for a reason to make us think about something, and then we'll talk about some more subtle ways that we miss, sometimes misunderstand what he means. The first, the easiest one to clear away is he does not mean poor primarily in a material sense. He does not mean poor as in without money or lacking resources. He does use this word on purpose, though, to focus our attention on something. Kind of like when Jesus says that we should become like little children, he doesn't mean literally become like little children. There's something about the attitude of kids that he wants to direct our minds towards, wants to point us towards, make us think about. So when he says children, he means childlike attitude. He says poor, he means something about the attitude there, something about the way the poor are. Think. We know he doesn't mean literally poor because elsewhere when he describes the gospel, he never includes, the Bible never includes anything about cash actually getting us into heaven or lack thereof helping us to avoid it. And when he talks elsewhere in this gospel, even back in chapter 4, when Jesus talks about how he, he brings good news to the poor, 
He clearly expresses, we talked about this before, he clearly expresses something more than a literal poverty. Good news, liberation for captives. He means spiritual, something about attitude. But why does he say poor? Why not poor in spirit, like Matthew has? Well, he's going there. Matthew and Luke do not disagree with each other, but as I said, we've got to focus on Luke and let Luke take us to the place where Luke wants to take us. And Luke just says, poor. Because as we look at poor people, we see something, particularly back in that day. You'd see rich people and you would see well-clothed, confident, capable, carefree, secure, proud people with options and abilities. And in a day when there is no social safety net, when you see the poor, you see it today, but particularly back then, you would see needy and lacking, having no recourse. There isn't anybody to appeal to, to make this right. It just is. There's no opportunity, there's no chance, and there's no hope. And therefore you see the poor often reduced to begging, humble and meek. There's nothing else to do but beg. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't have bootstraps. I don't live in a society that works like that. I am poor, and I sit by the side of the road and say, please, please, please. He's turning our minds towards what you would see when you see the poor. That attitude of no recourse and no hope and no other way I might work it out and just a, an utter dependence and an emptiness and a hopelessness and a despair. A spirit that is humble and meek and needy and broken and lowly. That's what he's trying to turn our minds towards when he says the poor. Now, often it would be accompanied by actual lack of resources, but that's not the point. It's the attitude. He does not mean lack of money, but he's got something, he's got his finger on, wants us to be thinking about an attitude, a humble and meek, lowly, contrite, dependent attitude, but not primarily. The second thing, and as we're moving into this category, this gets more subtle. The second thing that he doesn't mean is this attitude displayed. Now, of course, any attitude that's genuine will come out of us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands act. But primarily, at this point, he is not talking about what we display. This gets, this gets subtle. And the reason we need to talk about this is that it is easy to miss this and therefore completely miss the kingdom. Completely miss actually becoming a Christian and, 
I, I recognize that I'm talking to a room full of people who by and large, most of us are actually believers. But that we need, all of us, we need to grab a hold of this and pay attention to this because it is also easy for us to miss something. If we misunderstand what he means by poor and what he means by this attitude, this, this spirit of poverty, if we miss that, then we miss, accidentally miss the whole atmosphere of the kingdom and miss much of the enjoyment of the kingdom that he means for us to have. I'll come to this a little bit later, but we, even if you're a Christian, you need to keep listening to this because what he's talking about here what he's not talking about here is a misunderstanding that we often ourselves commit, a misunderstanding we make, and it costs us too. So he's not talking primarily about a displayed attitude. What I mean by that, something that's about our, our personalities, how we carry ourselves or what we do. Some people, maybe me, maybe you, some of us, by how we are, by how we carry ourselves, by our personalities, have a much more apparently lowly or humble spirit to us. You know people like this. Maybe you are a person like this. You're just quiet by nature. You're reserved, thoughtful, careful, polite, unassuming, Maybe even, move it a little more towards the negative, melancholy or timid, meek, mousy. You know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that. I identify with a lot of those words. And, and having a lot of self-control, you are rarely domineering. Nobody's ever accused you of being brash. Rarely do people say, man, whew, about you. But instead, they often compliment you on being so nice and so gracious and so kind. So, so laid back. You are so cool and laid back. There are people like that, and there are people who aren't like that, right? And we can look at people, and we can look at the outsides of people, and we can think, and often do, readily identify, there's a person who is meek and lowly. That's a person, if he has a religious bent, there's a person who's, who's pious. Sits in church like this. Well, I sit at a football game like this. And I yell at people in front to sit down. Because I can't see. That's personality. That's not godliness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And it's very easy to misunderstand and say, look, there goes the pious one. There's the humble one. There's the one that Jesus must be talking about. There's the one who has the kingdom of God. Or to think, I'm the one who has the kingdom of God because I'm so reserved and so kind and so laid back and so calm, cool, and collected and humble and meek and lowly. And I let people say what they think and believe what they want. I don't know everything. I mean, maybe you know more than me. And that's surely what Jesus is talking about. And it has nothing to do with it. Nothing. It looks like it does, but it's just who you are as a person, and maybe who you are as a person shaped by culture or shaped by your family upbringing, but it's just you. If we look only at what a person is on the outside, how they present, we are very likely to misunderstand. 
And my two points here, it's very likely that you could miss the kingdom completely because you could think that's what Jesus is talking about. Those are the people who have the kingdom. Or it's very likely that if you're a Christian already in the kingdom, that you think, I'm one of those people. I, I am, look how humble I am. Look how contrite and lowly in spirit I am, the one that the Lord revives. As I read from Isaiah. And it's not you at all. That's just how you are, by personality. We could look at outside how we are, how we carry ourselves. We could look at actions also and misunderstand. It doesn't take very long for a listener to hear humility, lowliness, contrition, good, arrogance, haughtiness, pride, bad. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And to try really hard to be humble, to try really hard to let other people speak and not shout them down, to try really hard to be gracious, and that can be a good thing. I'm, I'm not against that. That's appropriate interpersonal behavior. It's just not what Jesus is talking about. That's just actions. And nowhere whatsoever, nowhere does the Bible say what you do gets you the kingdom. Behave in a humble way and yours is the kingdom of God. No. So we could, mis we could misunderstand that. It a very good thing to, to attempt to be humble, a very good thing, but we could miss that, and we could also miss it if we're Christians already in the kingdom, we could miss the fullness of the kingdom blessing, this reviving of the Lord that would come upon the contrite by thinking, I behave very meekly, and I behave very politely, and I, everybody compliments me on how laid back I am, and not actually be contrite in heart at all. So I've gone a ways into what we aren't talking about because, remember, the shiny thing right here, the kingdom. To have the kingdom be yours is everything in life. And to then experience day by day by day the fullness of the king's reign and the king's blessing in your heart is everything in life. And it is so easy to misunderstand it by misunderstanding what this word poor poor in spirit, what it actually means. It's easy to miss it. And tragic to miss it. Well, if that's not what he is, he, if that's what he isn't talking about, then what is he talking about? Let's get to that. Poor in spirit, poor receives the kingdom. So what is that, positively speaking? Here's the third point. Those who receive and enjoy the kingdom. What I mean by that is those who come into the kingdom, those who receive it, become Christians, and those who enjoy it, those who experience the fullness, the goodness of the king's reign in my heart now, those who experience the reviving, we read about Isaiah, those who receive and enjoy the kingdom are the poor 
in regards to their sin before God. Those who receive and enjoy the kingdom are the poor in regards to their sin before God. This is a much more profound poverty than we were just talking about. It's not outward, it's not shown in my behavior, it's not about just my personality, but it is a humbleness and contrition in the heart. It is a destitution in the heart, a plunging, I want to use words here that paint a picture for you of down, destitution, a plunging of the heart into despair over one's own sin. Now, plunging, despair. Trust me, I'm coming back. It's a shiny kingdom still sitting here. But you don't get there without going down. The poor receive the kingdom. Hopelessness and helplessness and inability and emptiness, not because, not because I find myself in the world unable to make something happen, unable to make relationships work, or unable to get a job. No, hopeless and helpless and despairing because of my sin before God. Like what happened to Peter that day in the boat. Remember Luke chapter 5? Peter knows Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He knows his power, knows his goodness, knows his compassion. When Jesus gets into his boat and tells him to let down the nets, he calls him master. Lord, he doesn't say, no, master, he doesn't say Lord yet. Master, we've been out all night, but because you say so, on your word, we will obediently let down the nets. And he obeys the master who he knows. And the fish come pouring into the boat. And what's the change that happens? Do you remember? Peter, on his knees. Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He changes terms, not just master, Lord. He uses a term tied to God. He doesn't understand everything about God, but he knows something is different. Lord, my eyes have seen something away from me. I am a sinner. I, wasn't, what did I, I didn't say anything about your sin. I said, let down the nets. Oh, something has come upon him, and he's seen himself. I'm a sinner before you, Lord. I don't belong in your presence, and I'm afraid right now. The, the text makes very clear that the next few words he says are about fear. I'm afraid right now because I know what is due to me, what should be the case. I have no standing before you. I have no leverage against you. I am a sinner before you, Lord. Away in fear. He saw and was made poor in spirit in a moment. Not because I'm a cruddy fisherman, because I'm a sinner. 
Like Isaiah saw in that dramatic vision in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, you must know that passage. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah's eyes are opened and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. He sees a a great king with a, a robe, the train, the back end of the robe, filling the whole of the building. And the angels hovered over him and cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the building shook and filled with smoke. And Isaiah, who was a prophet of the Lord, and in the previous chapter, six times, six times had said to wicked Israel, Woe are those who, woe are those who, woe is doom. Doom to those who, doom to those who. Now, with his eyes open, says, Doom to me. Woe to me. For my eyes have seen the king, and I am a man of unclean lips. There it is again. I see myself as sinner before the holy, holy, holy king. Isaiah is undone in a new and fresh way. He is impoverished in spirit. He is humbled before the Lord, rendered without hope, without recourse. Extremely aware. I have no way to make this right doom to me. Peter and Isaiah and all who truly have citizenship in this kingdom of God have come to the point of hopeless, helpless vulnerability in our sin before God. Not always in response to a threat of judgment. That's not it. Peter doesn't encounter that at all. Jesus doesn't say anything about judgment, nothing about wrath in the boat. Sometimes it's in response to something amazing and marvelous and beautiful or pure and holy that we see in God. Maybe perhaps a little bit like I was thinking of how we are sometimes undone. Situations like this. If you, a little boy caught by his grandmother telling an obscene joke. He tells the joke. He laughs And then he sees her seeing him. And he's undone. Seeing her, seeing him, he sees himself and realizes, I now know what I am. And I'm ashamed of it. There's no threat. There's just a comparison of, of, in his eyes, purity and dirtiness. Sometimes it's just by comparison, just seeing the goodness and the glory and the beauty of God. And sometimes there is, as in Isaiah's moment, a shaking and a quaking of a holiness and a sense of my sin. Whatever it is, however it is, this profound, I'm trying to push us down so far, this profound poverty of spirit is the necessary destitution that leads to blessed, blessed, blessed. For such ones and only such ones. Remember the thrust of that sentence. For those, the poor, are those who 
have the kingdom. Why? For such ones like that are the only people who, at the, who are at the end of their own rope and laid down everything they were clinging to and says, none of this stuff works. I cannot fix the problem. I cannot fix the problem of my sin and it's all laid down there and before the sword I sit and it's raised above my head in right judgment and then those such ones, only those such ones, see the sword fall on another and see someone else slain on their behalf and find that Christ is a savior of the hopeless ones. Only such ones as who are at the end of themselves and who are poor in spirit and say, I have no hope, I have no recourse, I am a sinner before the holy God. Only them ones, only such ones find Christ a savior of the hopeless. He's not a savior of the halfway strong or the somewhat broken. He's a savior of the hopeless. Down is the way to find a savior. And then this is the place. This is, this is the place where this has to turn. Now before I turn, let me point out something here. I'm not talking about one of the ways into the kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor. Yours only is the kingdom. Every genuine conversion, every genuine conversion to Christ has traveled this path. As I said, sometimes it is a path that is traced with some sort of, of threat of judgment, and sometimes it is just a path of, of contrasting shame. I see the beauty of Christ, and I see my own filth. But every true path to conversion has followed this down. We have to be really clear on that. And then we have to be, have to be, have to be clear about the coming up. Do not, don't yourself and don't let me, don't yourself stay down and don't let me press you down. But you have to see this is, this is beatitude. Blessed. This is good news. Christian, Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Much. Much leads to much. We have to keep following through the story. Isaiah says, Lord, I am undone. And God lifts up fire from the altar of sacrifice and says, your sin is atoned for, you're cleansed. Who can I, go, who can I find to go as a servant for me? Here am I, says Isaiah. He's not left crushed, but instead is lifted up and moved to service by an awesome, by an amazing cleansing. The sa it's in the same chapter. The beginning of the chapter is just as true. He didn't like eliminate that. He didn't do what many of us tragically try to do, suppress it, avoid it, pretend it's talking about somebody else 
No, he said, that was me. Like 10 seconds ago, that was me. And now, 10 seconds post, it isn't me. I am not under the sword anymore. I am clean. Christian, do not suppress, do not reject, do not deny the down. Go down and walk it all of the way through the gospel, please. Walk it all of the way through, down, down, down. I dwell in the high and lofty place and with him, with her, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the contrite, to revive the lowly. Not to revive the non-contrite and the non-lowly. To revive the contrite and the lowly. There is great upness in the downness. Be willing to go down that he may lift you up. This is not negative and depressing downer. It is glory because it magnifies Christ and the grace of God in Christ, which is what our souls were made to live off of. Your soul was made to live off of Christ. Christ made big. Christ's grace written in front of your eyes in gigantic font. You are made to live off of that. And you see a glorious Christ when you see, I cannot believe that me undone a sinner, that he did not leave me, he did not judge me. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, but it saved me. It saved me in Christ. And there is now no condemnation on me. This is the atmosphere of the kingdom, poverty and spirit. This is the atmosphere, the attitude of our own hearts that receives the glorious good reign and all of the, all of the fullness of the glorious good reign of the king in us. An attitude that says, I have nothing, I bring nothing, you are everything, you did it all, and you did it all for me. Amazing, amazing grace. We remain, as you remain poor in spirit, you remain continually blown away that Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Ah. Make it personal. Christ died for me. Does that shock you? It should. And if it would shock you, it would move you to love. It would move you to trust and to service. Christ died for me. I'm blown away that Christ loves me. That Christ calls me, me, friend, brother, sister, that Christ sees me as desired, as delightful, pure, spotless bride. That Christ will always do me good, perfectly so, always. That Christ will never leave me nor forsake me, but in fact is committed to always working out of me what is wrong and working into me what is right. I am, I have nothing. 
poverty in spirit. But because of Christ, I have everything. The riches of Christ are yours. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom. The kingdom. It is yours. How fortunate you are. And how good he is. He bought it for you, and he gave it to you, and he secures it for you. You fortunate, blessed, poor one. Let me pray. Oh, Father, would you please speak to your people and revive the lowly and the contrite. And if there are some here who who inappropriately feel crushed or burdened or, or laid low, would you lift them up? And if there are some here who are inappropriately not laid low, would you humble? Lord, I don't know where every person is. You do. Spirit of God, would you run through the room and would you attend to the needs of each individual? If there are some who don't know you, would you point out to them the hopelessness and despair apart from Christ? Would you show them, would you give them poverty of spirit? Show them yourself and then show them yourself as a Savior. And for my brothers and sisters here, Father, for your sons and daughters here, Father, would you love them in this way? Would you show them the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of your love for them in Christ? For them who are poor in spirit, magnify Christ in the eyes of your people, Lord, by showing us our utter inability. The Lord, please, be true to your word. Dwell then with the contrite and lowly and revive. Revive. Spirit of God, bless your people in this way. Build your church in this way. Thank you. Amen.